This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's been three years since one of the largest natural disasters in state history. Much of the northern part of the Front Range was soaked by massive flooding. Boulder County was hit the hardest. We're going to talk to the mayors of two small towns that are still resco- still recovering. Tara Schettinger of Jamestown and Connie Sullivan of Lyons. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Tara, your, your town's pretty small, uh, only about 300 people, and it was almost wiped out by the flood. Uh, one person died and you lost 17 homes. You've said the town has found a new normal. Uh, how has the look of Jamestown changed? I think the the look of Jamestown's changed quite a bit, actually, because the flood, when the floodwaters came through, they took away so much of our vegetation. The James Creek used to pass through town and really behind homes and behind vegetation that you couldn't even really see it. And now it's one of the primary focuses when you go through town. And largely because so much of the vegetation is gone and so many of the properties are gone that used to hide the creek, I guess, behind our community. A large, big, large bridge, which is almost an overpass that um, replaced a small bridge that was um, a key portion of our of our transportation routes through town. But it's it's quite different. And the creek, of course, that runs through the center of town is much more prominent now. So is it also louder? How do people feel about that? It's definitely much louder. I think I think some people love it, love listening to the stream waters as they roll through town. And I think for other people, it can be uh, a little unsettling, especially when we have large thunderstorms. And Connie, your town is much bigger than Jamestown, about 2,000 residents. You said recently that Lyons is about halfway through rebuilding and recovery, and that's in a story in the Longmont Times call. What's the hardest part of this rebuilding and recovery process? What's been the most difficult to deal with? Um, Well, I think you've got the logistical challenges of trying to manage several large infrastructure projects at once. You know, they're scheduling these projects and then uh, around peak season for the river when you can be doing work in the river, Um, but also the funding of those projects, uh, these these uh, grant funds are reimbursement-based, so we have to actually pay for the project up front and then get reimbursed. So that makes it challenging from a cash flow perspective. But I think also just, um, you know, for the residents, you know, that everybody has been impacted in some way and everyone is still on a little bit of a different path in terms of their own recovery. We have some residents that are literally still trying to figure out where they're going to call home. Um, or rebuilding or in the process of rebuilding their homes and the other residents are, have f- pretty much moved on or we even have new residents that don't have a frame of reference of lines prior to the flood. Do you know offhand how many residents left and have not returned following the flood? Um, it's hard to get exact numbers, but our estimates are that we have about 100 people who have not been able to return. And Tara, what would you say has been the hardest part of the recovery process for Jamestown? I think the the emotional side of it for for the community members, you know, our community was displaced and couldn't come home for the first 10 months. And whether their homes were impacted by the flood or not, we just didn't have running water for folks and we didn't have roads for people to access their homes. So I think that was that was early on one of our biggest challenges. And then what everybody came home to was a town that was completely under reconstruction. And... um, so each time the backup beeps start or new iron rolls into town, I think it's just, you know, it's one more reminder of what, what everybody went through and, and the emotions that they experienced during during the event itself, the 10 months that they were depla- displaced and since they've come home. And you lost someone in the, in the flood as well. We did. And, and Connie, 
you weren't mayor at the time of the flood. You did and, and, and still do own a deli called the St. Vrain Market. Uh, yours is one of the first Lions businesses to reopen after the floods, but you lost 80% of your inventory and most of your staff. And no flood insurance, that, that's according to a story in the L.A. Times back then. How long did it take you to fully recover, to feel fully recovered from that? Um, yeah, we own uh, one of the two grocery stores in town. So um, we were one of the few businesses that actually sustained some physical damage from the flood. Um, we are not located in the floodplain, so not required to have any kind of flood insurance. Um, and, yeah, we, we essentially had to restart our entire business from scratch. Uh you know, we were able, we, we were determined to get open as soon as we possibly could just because we felt it was really important to show the town that things were going to get back to normal at some point and to be there for the people who were in town working, trying to offer some sort of services to them. Um, you know, are we? <laughs> I, I question whether we're still fully recovered mm. and the financial losses from rebuilding um, a business that we had been working on, on over five years, trying to rebuild that in a space several months um, was very costly to us. And you're still in, are you now in a floodplain? Has there been, you know, new maps drawn because of this historic flood that you now are, are in, in that danger zone for a large flood? Um, I, I don't believe so. The new maps are uh, expected to come out sometime in 2018 uh, that will redraw our floodplain. But uh, the damage to our store and to the downtown area was really a result of debris dams that built up further upstream. And Lyons lost about a fifth of its housing stock in the flood. A few dozen mobile homes were destroyed. And we heard from your predecessor last year that there are now fewer affordable homes in the area. How is that lack of housing affecting businesses, including yours? Um, I would say that... um, Practically every business in Lyons this summer has had a really challenging time finding staff. A lot of the people who have not been able to return were part of our workforce and have had to relocate elsewhere. And uh, with the economy improving, uh, improving and uh, the low unemployment rate, you know, there's less of an incentive for people to drive to Lyons for an hourly job. So I think that we're definitely seeing uh, it's much harder to compete for for good employees. So how are you enticing? you know, employees to come there? You know, um, I think we're all, you know, working to try to be as competitive as we can in terms of pay or offering some benefits that we didn't offer in the past. Um, But I think the town is also working on trying to address the housing problem as the uh, primary problem. And Tara, Jamestown lost about 13% of its housing stock. What happened to the people who lost their homes? Some people have been able to rebuild Um, in the same location as they were before. Other people had to find new locations to rebuild, and uh, some people had to find new housing altogether. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's been three years since massive flooding hit the northern part of the Front Range. We're talking to the mayors of two Colorado towns that were hit especially hard. Tara Schettinger is the mayor of Jamestown, and Connie Sullivan is the mayor of Lyons. Uh, Let's turn back to Connie uh, in Lyons and dig a little deeper into the question of affordable housing. Uh, So the town is focused on rebuilding what was lost, and you've talked with developers and Habitat for Humanity, and they're willing to help out, but you've also had a lot of obstacles. Residents don't like where specific buildings would have gone, and developers found that building these units didn't make sense for them. It's three years after the flood. Uh, Have you been able to put up any new affordable housing units at all? Um, we haven't built new units yet, but we do have the six Habitat homes that are on scope to hopefully start construction. Um, 
we are tackling this problem in any way that we possibly can. We're looking at ordinances to incentivize accessory dwelling units, um, trying to encourage people who have space and are maybe looking for a little extra income to uh, convert a garage or convert um, a space in their home that they could rent out to someone who's interested in renting long term. Um, we're not giving up on the idea of a larger project. Um, our challenge is land. We don't have very much land outside of the floodplain, and the residents um, were not supportive of an idea to convert some of our existing park space into housing. Uh, so we are moving on and looking at other locations currently. And so there's the rezoning issues, the subdividing issues, things like that, that's really hampering your, your movement forward, it seems. Yeah, correct. I mean, it, it, it's not easy to uh, rezone a, an existing parcel to try to convert it into something else that has to go through, obviously, a, a public process and an established process. But um, we're willing to look at any proposal that does come forward. Well, what are some of those other options besides building more homes? Um, I, you know, in terms of, um, I mean, we're really, we're at a point where we have to build new units to increase our housing stock. We have no other way of, of, you know, we've lost, uh, some of our residential property that has converted to commercial. So we're really just lacking, uh, land at this point to build new residential units on. And is that always, it's, of course, it's a concern where you live that, that you've got a very limited resource, the land to rebuild on, and then the fear that people may not come back because they're in a flood zone. Um, you know, people, we gave the, uh, the people who had a home that was destroyed and located in the floodplain had the choice of either taking a buyout or rebuilding and trying to elevate their home. And some chose to elevate, some chose to take a buyout. So, um, you know, ideally you could put people outside of the floodplain. I mean, that makes good sense. And, and land that's inside the floodplain should be, uh, you know, could, could become parkland or parking or some other, serve some other use where we don't put people at risk. So that is our focus, trying to find land that uh, doesn't put people at risk, but also adds to that housing stock and replaces that affordable housing that we lost. And there's also this focus on accessory dwellings, which, which is carriage houses and, and garages and things like that, correct? Correct. We're um, hoping to see a new ordinance come to the board in October that would start the process to remove some of the financial barriers that are in place currently around tap fees that make it harder for people to invest in an accessory dwelling unit. And Tara, you had houses around your house that are no longer there. Uh, What's it been like to lose those neighbors and those homes? Oh, well, um, it's been awful. It's, Mm. uh, we lost... Four neighbors out of our five. Joe Hallett, who died during the flood, was one of them. Who you mentioned earlier, yeah. Right. And um, so it's certainly a new normal in terms of uh, the landscape out, out of our windows. What keeps you there? What keeps you, both of you, mayors of these towns? Uh, I think for me it's uh, the sense of community. Yeah, I I think, you know, Lyons is a really determined community. And I think even though um, we've had our struggles trying to um, bring our community back together, I think we are making significant progress. And um, we're about halfway, I say, when we get those streets 
paved in our hardest hit neighborhoods and the confluence, we'll turn the corner. And I think that that is giving everyone the emotional boost that we need to keep going. Yeah. Connie, give us a sense of how the money you'd need to spend to fix all the infrastructure from the flooding compares with Lyon's normal budget. (laughs) Uh, We operate on about a $1.5 million general fund, and we easily have over $50 million of infrastructure repair work to do. So uh, on a reimbursement basis, obviously, if you do the math, that recovery would take an extremely long time to do on our own budget. Uh, so we've been fortunate to work with the state to come up with some funding solutions to help us uh, cash flow the recovery and keep multiple projects moving at one time. And, and how about uh, Jamestown in that sense? We operate on an annual budget of about $140,000 a year, and we have about $25 million in uh, recovery. 20, $25 million in recovery. Yes. That's that's so a staggering doing number. Doing math yeah. would take a really long time, <laughs> and um, and so we've been working really closely with the state and the federal government to ensure that the town isn't riddled with debt, and trying to be as absolutely fiscally responsible as we can with every dollar that's spent. So, Tara, that's one of the challenges that remains. What are some of the other challenges that you're facing with? Uh, it seems sometimes uh, uh, mental in a sense, and sometimes you know financial, and sometimes physical. Sure. And I think I think we're dealing with all of those, you know, coming back together as a community and everybody being in a, in a different emotional um, state at different times. And uh, certainly the financial piece isn't easy. People trying to rebuild their lives, both financially, emotionally and physically, uh, at the same time that the town is trying to do the same thing and being compassionate to one another and helping to support one another during these difficult times, recognizing that we're all in different places and all doing the best that we can, I think is, is, is the most we can ask of people. And, and final question, as the anniversary comes around each year, it's not just a single day, it's, it's a week and, and multiple days that this flooding occurred. What does it feel like having to go for that long of time, remembering that, you know, today was this happened and then the next day this happened and the next day this happened? And you're still dealing with it every day. Right. I think it, it's, I think people have definitely been uh, remembering the events and where we were. I know on the 14th, I sent out a, a note to our community just reflecting on how we were in the middle of our evacuation mission where we uh, evacuated by air over 300 people and animals, basically everyone in our community, because we had no roads in or out left. And by the 16th, by today, three years ago, we would have been wrapping up that mission, uh, working on Joey's recovery, and um, just taking in, whew, still emotional for me, sorry, um, just taking in what was to lie ahead. And I think that it was beyond my immediate comprehension as to what, what that looked like. Yeah, and for Lions, um, you know, every anniversary so far has felt a little bit different. Um, you know, I think the first anniversary, we, we all, uh, I think there was that moment where we recognized just how long it was going to take to get fully back. Um, you know, the second year, it's, it felt like we were working so hard and we didn't have a whole lot that we could see, tangibly look at to say, what have we accomplished? And so that was really hard as well. It just felt like progress was not fast enough um, certainly people are fatigued and, and really weary of all of the construction going on. I would say this year, um, 
you know, while a lot of people are still dealing with their own personal recovery and, and we're still dealing with a lot of really big issues, there was at least a a, a positive moment where we were re, we were finally able to reopen one of our parks and um, kind of take a moment to step back and kind of celebrate that we finally had something to, to look at that looked uh, like a tangible symbol of success. And we have a couple of other projects that um, we hope to wrap up here shortly. So I think, you know, hopefully this year felt a little more positive for most folks. Yeah. Thanks so much to the both of you for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Connie Sullivan is mayor of Lyons. Tara Schettinger is mayor of Jamestown. Both are in Boulder County. They talked with us about how their towns are still affected by flooding in September 2013. Still to come from freedom fighter to pharmacy manager, the story of a Colorado man's journey from Ethiopia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. If you ever meet Kasai Abraha behind the pharmacy counter of a Denver King Supers, you'd have no idea he was formerly an Ethiopian freedom fighter. Abraha fought for the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Army, or the EPRA. It was an armed faction that opposed Ethiopia's militant government in the 1970s and 80s. He documents all of this in his book, Love of Asimba. The English translation of it is expected to be out later this year. Uh, Before we begin, a note of warning. The topics we're about to discuss may be graphic or contain content that could be upsetting to some listeners. Uh, Welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me. You were born in a rural area of the Tigray region in northern Ethiopia. You grew up listening to people talk about war. Uh, It was often on the minds of your family. When you were a young child, uh, how much of those conversations did you understand? Uh, yeah, because um, I heard my parents uh, speaking, say, for example, uh, World War II. Uh, the they, Second World War. The Second World War. They, they remember a lot. Uh, and then uh, <coughs> also when I was uh, fourth grade, I remember uh, the Arab-Israel War. Mm. It was very widely uh, heard uh, at the place where I was in, uh, when I was in elementary school. And then also at that time, the Eritrean fighters started uh, fighting against the government for secession. Uh, in from, Eritrea. In Eritrea, Eritrea yeah. So, uh, and my hometown is in the, in, on the border of Ethiopia and Eritrea, in the Tigray and Eritrea. So uh, all this, uh, from all these directions, uh, definitely, you know, uh, every time, every time, topic was war. Was war. So from a young age, you had that ingrained in a sense. Yes. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. You you moved to the city for your education, and this was the first time you learned about organized opposition against the Ethiopian government. You also heard about what you call political writings, uh, and you and your friends would sneak off to secluded places to read these pieces of work. And you say they give you a special feeling. Uh, what excited you about these publications? Uh, yeah, I, I remember it was a very special, uh, special moment for me. Um, uh, when I, when I see from sixth grade, I have to go uh, 35 kilometers away from home for high school. So I was living with uh, with the family members, uh, and then uh, we, you know, when we were in high school, like seventh grade, eighth grade, uh, 
there was demonstrations that we always hear from the university, like from Addis Ababa University. And mm -hmm. then when they come during the summertime or uh, after there is no school, uh, they always talk as about the revolution, uh, how the government is bad to the people, um, the feudal system is uh, oppressing the people, such and such things. And then when I, <laughs> when I. Uh, had the chance with a friend of mine to read that newspaper against the government, we were unable to see it inside the city and we have to go a little bit far away from the city so to be, uh, to be hidden to read that newspaper. You couldn't be seen in the city. You had to leave and, and find a secluded place. Absolutely, absolutely. So we have to read it very secretly. And I remember it was published in Beirut. And then from Beirut, how it came to my hometown, God knows. And we read it. And then uh, my friend, he has, a, you know, he has a connection with the people who gave it to him. And then he gave them back again. And then that goes and goes and all, you know, the circulation. So it was uh, really a, a special meaning that, you know, when the newspaper was talking about uh, the people how they are suffering by the government. And when I see how my family, my father, a poor father, was being suffered by the government, by the system, by the police, by the judges, and everything, it comes to your mind. And you saw protests, and you were you were very close to protests, where, where your friends were injured and, and, and things like that. Yes, yes. I remember I was eighth grade at that time, and then, uh, you know, the high schools uh, came in from the school uh, protesting against the government, shouting, throwing stones and everything on the bus, and then the military came in from the camp uh, shooting everybody. Wow. And, and that must, of course, had a profound impact on you. Uh, yes. And then I was a young and then uh, I definitely rec uh, documented on the book also. Uh, there was uh, there was um, um, a bar around there and then we went inside the bar and then I have to hide underneath the bed. Were you scared at that time? Uh, yeah, definitely. But, you know, the, 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 the military came into the bars and then they were looking for everybody. And then when they saw I was very young, they just tell me, just go home, you are young. Don't get close with the big boys. Your father said something to you I, I, I read in the book. He said, we all live by paying bribes. Yes. How did the student protest you saw in 1972 shed new light on the things you saw as a child? Uh, that was a very remarkable moment for me. Um, my father is poor. Um, he has a case uh, with the land against rich people. And then he has to go to court. And then in order to, uh, <coughs> uh, to bribe the judge so he can side on, he can make a decision on him, he has to go early in the morning to his house to give him money, a bribe. Uh, he wake up in the morning, and I wake up with him, and then I followed him, and he didn't say nothing. We went, and then this is a big house, uh, not far from where we are at, and then he knocked the door from behind, and this judge came in from behind the the door of his house. He took my my father's money, and he went in. And my father didn't have that enough money, extra money, to give it to him, but he has no choice. And he told me, son, I wish I could give you this money for your clothes and everything. But if I didn't give this money for the judge, I will lose my case. If I lose my case, 
they will take my farm land and then I cannot raise you. So that was a, a main reason then in, in 1975, you and a friend left your home yes. to join the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Party. Um, absolutely, because you know, one of the slogans of the students was uh, equality, the land equality to the tenants. So I have that background, I have that wound, I have that scar, I have that bad um, experience when my uh, father was being uh, <coughs> Uh, harassed by those people who wants to take his land. So if, if you know, if these people are fighting and struggling uh, for the equality of land and for freedom and for democracy, for the justice, then I have no problem with it. And then I decide to join and to to sacrifice my life. And those were things you were willing to fight for. What do you remember about the first time you engaged in, in actual combat? Uh, the first time I engaged in actual uh, combat, I was um, uh, really, I was so young and I didn't know uh, what is, you know, when you see somebody dying, I have never seen. Mm. I have never seen at that time. And then I was, I was just uh, anxious to see how the real bullet kills your friend or you or uh, you kill an enemy. So at that time, it was not that much of a big difference for me uh, because we won uh, the, the battle and then we took everything from the camp. Uh, but when you keep going and going and when you see your best friend or your best comrade is losing his life on your eyes while you see him or her, that is a very, very, very dangerous. And there's a, a point in your in your book where you credit a farmer with saving your life. H who is the farmer, and and how did you meet him? Uh, this was uh, we we traveled almost a month for a mission from our base from Asimba. Uh, Asimba it is a mountain uh, found in the Tigray province in Agami uh, area, which is all the way northeast which is not very far from, from the Red Sea. So that was our base, and then we traveled almost a month all the way south to the Wollo province for a mission. Mm. And the people around there, they didn't know that much about organization. We were new to them. They were new to us. Uh, therefore, uh, they have to fight with us. They were fighting against you. Against us. And we were telling them, we are not against you. We are not your enemy. We are your friends. We are fighting for your freedom and for your, uh, <coughs> for your rights. And this farmer jumped out at you and grabbed you. Exactly. So we, we the, the fighting that moment, okay, day before that, we had to fight with the military and with the people and we won. And then uh, the third day, uh, the fighting started early in the morning and then until noon. It, this is a continuous. And then some of us, uh, <coughs> we didn't have even enough ammunition. Mm. So from bullet, it started with a knife and with a sworn and then with an axe and everything. So I was, uh, <coughs> I was aiming uh, to the east side and then he came from my left side, which is from the south side from the north side, I mean, 
And then I didn't see him until his shadow when he was jumping at me like 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 a snake or something like that. So I turned my weapon that was M1, called M1 weapon, aiming at him, but I didn't decide to push the trigger. Why not? I just felt something when I see him jumping. He's so big, tall, and uh, just just looked like I'm killing my father. He's a farmer. I just didn't pull the trigger. It was a matter of seconds, and he realized that. You placed all of your trust in him. He could have taken you to the peasants and... Yes, yes. And he told me, because he he saw me, he observed me from far that I was shooting and shooting and shooting. And he told me, how come you didn't kill me? Because you were shooting and shooting and shooting. You were just, you know, uh, you had enough ammunition. How come you didn't uh, shoot me? I told him, well, I didn't shoot you because you might have a kid's... If I shoot you, the kids will be without father, but I have no kid, no nothing. If I die, that's that's what I am here, I told him. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Kasai Abraha. He wrote a book about fighting with the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Army in the 70s. It's called Love of a Simba, and the English translation is expected out later this year. You occasionally questioned the intentions and actions of some EPRA leaders. There's an instance early on in your time with the group when you helped loot the property of a potential spy. That didn't sit well with you. How do you reconcile those moments? You're with an organization that were doing these things. Yeah, it is It is really uh, when I see such kind of uh, sad events and then uh, you have no power to stop it. Uh, because when you are a rank and file, you have to obey the rules and the regulations of your leaders. So whatever the leaders decided, you have to do it. You cannot object. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was, I was in pain when I see that, when, I, when we kill that ox uh, from that, from that uh, farmer, and assuming that uh, the you know the the kids could be benefit, like I was getting benefit when I was a child from my father. So one of the you know one of my commissars told me you know, Kasai, uh, this is a struggle. Hmm. During struggle, you will see bad things and good things. There is always up and down. There might be something that you disagree, but for every thing, you have to be quiet and follow our directions and the leader's decisions. I want to talk with you about uh, Delai. Mm-hmm. She also served with the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Army, and mm-hmm. you got to know her on a very intimate level. Mm-hmm. You two fell in love. Uh, but it was forbidden to be in love with a fellow fighter. Isn't that right? Yes, sir. Uh, it's very hard to explain. And because uh, we are in the middle of nowhere, both of us, female and male, mm. we are in our early 20s, youngsters. The only thing we have is a weapon and full of ammunitions. So... 
when you have when you both are engaged in in a romantic situation but your organization forbidding you to do anything at all even to talk about romance is against the law of the organization except you have to do it in secret so i mean you know um we are not in a ice cream bar or in you know starbucks or something like you're that you're in a war zone we are in a war zone and we are in a place where there is no one except me and her so expressing how to express my feeling and the way she express her feeling is quite remarkable and non forgettable at all because all we have is our weapons and our ammunition even we are not in a house we are in a bush we are un- sitting under a tree and and sadly you were never reunited after the war uh, is that correct never she died while serving the movement absolutely uh, after i left she stayed uh, for about 2 years and uh, she passed away and she she did what she has to do you hesitate to call this book a, a memoir uh, you've said it's not about your life, but it's the story of your fallen comrades. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is uh, <clears throat> there are so many people who have served the organization, the army, and he, they paid their sacrifice, their life, but never told their story. So when I write this book, what I meant is to write about them. but i have to start from something when i start something i have to start from my root from my movement what i saw what i heard what i touched is what i wrote briefly <coughs> would you do it all over again knowing what you know now all over doing everything your life in the sense that getting into the battle getting into the movement <laughs> mm-hmm. would you do it again well now i'm a different person You work at a pharmacy in in Denver. Exactly, and and I'm a U.S. citizen, so I'm enjoying <coughs> the freedom of the American people. I have a kids. If I have to sacrifice, I have to sacrifice for the for the American people as an American citizen. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, sir. Kasai Abraha writes about fighting with the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Army in his non-fiction book Love of Asimba. The English translation is expected out later this year. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Just ahead, CPR's John Daly talks with doctors who disagree about whether Colorado should embrace universal health care. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Tonight, the Colorado Medical Society, the state's largest physicians organization, will announce where it stands on a key health proposal on the fall ballot. It's called Colorado Care, a proposed constitutional amendment to create universal health coverage for the state's residents. Health reporter John Daly talked with CPR's Joanne Allen. John, what kind of debate has the Colorado Care ballot measure created for the state's doctors? 
Well, Joanne, it's generating plenty of discussion and debate because this proposal would create major changes for Colorado's healthcare system. The new approach would be significantly different for both patients and providers. You spoke with a doctor on each side of this debate. Where do they disagree? Well, they disagree on a lot. Let's break down this into three primary components, coverage, cost, and quality. I spoke with a pair of internal medicine doctors. Dr. Mark Matthews backs the proposal. He's practiced with Kaiser for 13 years and sees a lot of the poorest patients, those on Medicaid. We should point out he doesn't speak for Kaiser, which opposes Colorado Care. Matthew says there are global disparities in health care that don't favor the U.S. system. Our costs are almost twice as high as any other industrialized country for health care. And, and despite spending so much money, unlike the other industrialized countries, we don't cover everybody. Dr. Matthews says even with the Affordable Care Act, Colorado still has a million people either uninsured or who can't afford insurance. He likes that under the Colorado Care Health Plan, they'd all be covered. And the doctor who opposes Colorado Care, what's at the root of his opposition? That's Dr. Tashoff Burnton. He founded a rehab and occupational medicine practice in Aurora. He's worried about the financial sustainability of such a huge healthcare program. Burnton cites an independent analysis by the Colorado Health Institute that says Colorado Care would run into revenue shortfalls. He thinks that would result in three choices cut benefits, cut reimbursement, or go back to the citizens of the state and ask them for a higher tax increase. Now, number three, Hard to see that happening. They're most likely going to cut reimbursement. How does the other doctor, Dr. Matthews, respond to that concern? He says multiple economic reviews have shown the numbers do add up for Colorado Care. And he says the governing board will be devoted to its patient population and will want to keep providers happy and invested in the system. You know, I work as a salaried employee. More and more docs are being bought up by hospitals. And I can tell you, sometimes it's just not fun to be a cog in the machine. And I think Colorado Care would recognize that and be able to encourage smaller practices and giving them the, the, the financial means to make sure that they stay in practice. The critic of the plan, Dr. Burton, worries such broad-based health coverage might encourage people to move to Colorado from out of state just to get care. He also thinks some doctors could see a pay cut from lower reimbursement and from the taxes levied to pay for the programs, and they might move their practices out of state, all of which Burton says will lower the quality and availability of care. The availability of care that people have come to expect, it's not going to be there because you're going to have an increased demand and a decreased availability, and you're going to have inadequate financing from the get-go. That's overstating the case, according to Dr. Matthews, who says doctors and patients would not move their lives or professions over health care. Well, what part of this issue can these two doctors agree on? They both say there are many problems with the current system, but they disagree about whether Colorado Care or Amendment 69 is the best way to fix things. Here's Matthews, who's for it, and then Burton, who opposes it. I do think it is time for a change, and I think Colorado is a great place for it. It is not true anything is better than what we've got. 
We can, in fact, construct systems that are worse than what we've got, and unfortunately, Amendment 69 is one of them. Tonight at a meeting in Keystone, the Colorado Medical Society announces whether it'll support or oppose the Colorado Care proposal or stay neutral. The society polled its members, and that outcome led to an advisory committee recommendation that the board will vote on. CPR's John Daly speaking to Joanne Allen. Find all of John's reporting on Colorado Care at CPRnews.org. Up next, a curator goes on a treasure hunt to put together an exhibit at the Denver Art Museum. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Men get most of the attention in abstract expressionism, an art movement from the 40s and 50s, known for large, bold paintings. Names like Clifford Still and Jackson Pollock dominate. The Denver Art Museum is showcasing works by women. Curator Gwen Chanzit describes one by Pearl Fine. Lots of texture and color of blue and white and yellow, and it's all bound together with some collage. And the collage is not just collage normal paper, but it's iridescent. Chanzit wasn't aware of Fine's work before assembling this show, which features 12 female artists altogether. So why has Pearl Fine not been better known? It's a mystery to me. Her paintings are spectacular. Chanzit says putting the show together was like a treasure hunt, one clue leading to the next. Women of Abstract Expressionism is on view through September 25th. It's the first to display works by these artists at the same time. Earlier this year, Chanzit told CPR's Ryan Warner she got the idea after seeing an exhibition of Abstract Expressionism at the Jewish Museum in New York City. When I went through the show, all the usual suspects were highlighted, but there was a little section that mentioned some artists who I'd never heard of. And, you know, I'm an art historian. I pride myself on knowing this material And I hadn't heard of some of the men of color and some of the women. So on the plane ride home, I began thinking about it, and I was racking my brain. I really never set out to do a woman's show, although right now it's very au courant. I mean, everybody's doing women's shows. But I wanted to see who'd been left out of the canon. And in fact, when I got home and I researched, I realized that there had never been a major exhibition in a museum of the women of abstract expressionism. Remind us what abstract expressionism is. It's largely seen as the first truly, thoroughly American style of art. You know, prior to this time, this is really post-war, really on the heels of World War II, this movement really made the shift in avant-garde art go from Europe to the United States. And there isn't a one particular style. Abstract expressionism is a very personal response to the world. And yes, there were all kinds of new materials, new ways, larger canvases, all kinds of things that were that were different. But you can't really teach somebody how to make an abstract expressionist painting. It really has to do with um, personal responses to the world. And in that way, to bring in women's voices is truly to bring in unique voices, because in, well, in so many ways, these works of art are individual to the artist. Absolutely so. And I would say that we know abstract expressionism through what's been sort of called the heroic paint-splattered man. I mean, this has always (laughs) been seen as a very macho movement. And, of course, we only have to look to Jackson Pollock, to Willem de Kooning, to see where this has come. And now I'm presenting the work of 12 individual women who were there from the beginning 
They just haven't had their voices, for the most part, heard. Well, that's critical. They were there from the beginning. In other words, these were not women who who were latecomers. That's true. In general, people think of the women, oh, those women, they were just followers. Oh, the women, they only painted small. You know, oh, the women, they were all second generation. There are all these ideas that the women were not really there. But in fact, our paintings are from the 1940s and 1950s for the most part. Let's talk about the painting Bullfight. Uh, This is a large piece by de Kooning, and we're not talking Willem. We're talking about his wife, Elaine. You say, again, this movement was very much about the artist's personal reaction to the world. So how does that show up in this de Kooning work, which you can see for yourself at cprnews.org. I think if you didn't know its title, you'd be hard-pressed to know that it's literally a bullfight. Of course, that's true of abstract expressionism. But um, how is it a representation of the individual? That's a really uh, wonderful painting. And in fact, one of the things I'm very proud of in putting the exhibition together is that we've now acquired eight new works by women abstract expressionist painters for the Denver Art Museum collection. And that was the first one that I was able to acquire. And it's big. It's bold. It's our signature image. And it's a great painting for Denver as well, because Elaine de Kooning was teaching down in Albuquerque, and she was taken across the border with some friends to go see her first bullfight. She was so fascinated by the spectacle and the color and the energy that she did a whole series of bullfights. So if someone looks at that painting, doesn't know anything about what it might be, it's hardly the idea that somebody would would recognize it as a bullfight. And yet, what I think is kind of nice about many of the women in this exhibition is that they have titled their works. And so when we see the title Bullfight, we know what it is that the artist was responding to. Mm. She's not trying to make a pictorial representation of a bullfight. Yeah, you use the word energy. It has a lot of energy. It's extremely vibrant, uh, very diverse colors. I'm seeing yellows and lime greens and dark greens and blacks and deep reds and lighter reds and oranges. And this idea of naming a painting, telling the viewer what it is, is a departure from what a lot of the men were doing, right? Because, you know, right next door at the Clifford Still Museum, he was also an abstract expressionist painter, You'll see a lot of canvases with names like Untitled 4. and Or PH12. Right, exactly. <laughs> so th- that's a distinction to make. It's an interesting one. And I want to say, by the way, that Clifford Still was a very important teacher on the West Coast to some of the West Coast abstract expressionist women painters. But getting back to this notion of titles, I have noted throughout the exhibition, and you know, I put this uh, checklist together quite a long time ago, And it never really came to me until I saw the listing of the works and the pictures, and I realized how few untitled works there are in this exhibition. And I am very careful not to say the women did this and the men did that, because as soon as you go down that hole, you know, you're lost. But in fact, I think it's one of the things that's kind of special about the paintings of the women, that they seem to be having personal responses to something very specific whether it's an event like a bullfight, a person, it seems that the women are willing to let you in on the thing that influenced them. Now, someone once asked Helen Frankenthaler, why do you title your paintings? 
And at first she started talking about numbering and all the other things. And eventually she said, because a title has to have a meaning. And I think that's kind of interesting. In fact, we have the great Helen Frankenthaler Jacob's Ladder. First, as you walk into the main part of the gallery from the Museum of Modern Art, and she talked about as she was developing the painting, this figure seemed to come to her, and then a ladder, and so hence Jacob's Ladder. So it it revealed itself to her. Exactly. Well, thank you for sharing this history with us. Thank you. Gwen Chanzit, speaking with my colleague Ryan Warner. Chanzit curated Women of Abstract Expressionism at the Denver Art Museum. It runs through September 25th. You can hear an extended version of that conversation at cprnews.org. That's our show for today. Thanks to audio engineers Matt Hers and Michael Hughes, my director Rachel Estabrook, producers Andrew Dukakis and Stephanie Wolf, our executive editor is Ryan Warner. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. <laughs>